Hello, and welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with writers that have earned their independence. Today, we are talking to Bill Bishop. He was the first publisher on Substack, uh, so he's very special to us. He writes a newsletter called Cynicism, which is about China, and it's read by basically just a who's who's list of, you know, really important people in business, government, nonprofit, etc. Um, it's, it's really a pretty huge success. So Bill has a lot of interesting insight to share on why he started it, how he grew it, um, his advice for people new to the kind of paid newsletter game. Um, it's a really good interview, uh, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Bill Bishop of Cynicism. Bill Bishop, welcome to the Substack podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, you were the first publisher to come on to Substack, and for that we'll be forever grateful. And that's a that's reason enough to have you here. Uh, <laughs> but apart from that, you've got a really interesting career as a, a China analyst or China watcher. Um, and it started, I think, um, in Tiananmen Square in 1989, around about June 4, and something significant was happening. Can you tell me why you were there at that time and what was going on? Uh, sure. Well, actually, it's it's amazing. I think it was just about a year ago we were doing the first alpha of uh, Substack platform for my newsletter, um, and how time flies. And it's, yeah. it's remarkable how much the platform has improved. Um, so actually, I started studying uh, Chinese in college in 1986, and I ended up going to Beijing in January of 1989 for my semester abroad. Uh, and it just happened to be uh, when the sort of student protest started in April, and then I ended up working as a sort of what they call a fixer for CBS News through June 20th. Um, and so that involved some translating, although my Chinese at the time pretty much sucked. Uh, it involved a lot of schlepping gear around, trying to help with logistics, organized transportation. And it spent a lot of time on Tiananmen Square. I actually slept there, I think, five nights on the square. Um, and so it was, it was pretty interesting. It was also uh, quite heartbreaking. Uh, and taught me that I had no idea what was actually going on. So when I came back for my senior year of college, I ended up deciding to get serious about studying Chinese and actually studying. Um, and then that sort of propelled me into, uh, after I graduated, I went to Taiwan for a year to study Chinese intensively. And that kind of propelled me into more of a, a China-focused early part of my career. So I want to just focus a little bit on what was happening in Tiananmen Square that time because... Uh, I actually profiled you for Pando Daily about six years ago. Yes, thank and you we very talked, much. We talked about this uh, at that time, but I found it remarkable because you were describing running a videotape from one location to a hotel where the CBS reporters were based. And I'm not sure if you were dodging bullets on the way, but there was uh, activity in the area. No, we weren't dodging bullets. I was, I was 19 at the time. Um, and sort of fairly stupid. Um, but so we actually, after the, um, after the troops sort of fought their way into the center of the city, uh, we ended up, uh, had a room at the, uh, Beijing hotel and we were, um, uh, pretty close, just a few rooms away from where the photographer took that famous picture of tank man. Right. And so part of my job, um, was and this was 1989, so the cell phones were basically the size of bricks with a with a foot long antenna. And my job was whenever we heard gunfire, I was supposed to crawl out onto the balcony, call call CBS in New York and say roll tape and crawl out and hold the phone off the balcony to get this gunfire. 
Um, and then the other thing was there was no internet. And so all the video had to actually be, it was shot onto uh, tapes. And then um, all the networks would find people who were leaving China, flying to mostly to Tokyo to carry the tapes for them. They'd be picked up and then they get to the Tokyo Bureau and they'd be uplinked via, uplinked via satellite because the Chinese had cut off the satellite uplinks. And so um, one time we had some tapes uh, and my job was to then take it down and walk it up, uh, walk it up the street uh, to give to, um, to meet a car who was then going to run it up to the airport. And I walked out to sort of the back of the hotel and turned the corner. It was kind of a blind alley. I walked on the street and walked right in the middle of a, of a group of Chinese troops having breakfast. And I had a tape shoved in my uh, waist, uh, two tapes actually. And they kind of looked at me and I kind of looked at them and I just kept walking and, you know, nothing happened. What would have, what would have happened if they had caught you? Who knows? You know, I, it, who knows, right? But um, that, was, that was a little... Uh, uh, it, it was a little nerve wracking, um, but you know, at the time it was obviously fascinating and also, um, you know, they paid well and I was on financial aid. So it's like, wow, this is a great job. Was it obvious to you at the time that you were standing in the middle of history? You knew by then that, yeah, that, that it was, I mean, you know, when you're 19, I think you lack the perspective to understand what's really going on, but it was, it was such a powerful time that it was, it was obvious to pretty much everyone that there was some kind of history. And then, you know, again, I think, what what was also and it's definitely shaped my views towards China over the last I guess terrible decades sold um, is how it was such a heady time and people you know lots of people said this is really going to change and this you know the Communist Party can't last and the few years afterwards people said oh it's got to change it can't last you know the Berlin Wall fell the Soviet Union fell um, and yet here we are and um, the the China is even um, more authoritarian than it was back then 30 years later almost 30 years later at a time when people had pinned their hopes on the chinese economy opening up further right. and the political system reforming itself to be more right. like a western democracy and instead we have right. perpetual leader xi, uh, xi jinping and and lots of um and and to this day lots of uh, uh wishful thinking that i think colors a lot of analysis of what's going on so that was both an historic and I'm sure in a weird way, exciting thing to be in the middle of, but also hugely traumatic and uh, tragic. At the end of that, why did you want to go back to China? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think the, um, you know, where I went to high school, we actually had the first Chinese language program uh, in a high school in the U S uh, because uh, a, a an alum had, had died uh, in, uh, from a mosquito bite from Japanese encephalitis in the early 80s. And his parents had actually f um, set up an endowment to start this program. I didn't take it when I was, when I was at school, even though um, I could have taken it from sophomore year on because I wasn't interested. And then when I went, I went to Middlebury for college and Middlebury has great languages. I was pretty good at languages. And so I said, OK, Soviet, you know, Russian's too hard, too cold. Uh, Japanese, this was 82, there was a line out the door of the Japanese class because it was going to take over the world. Um, Chinese looked interesting. And then I think like a lot of people who get into Chinese, you know, China and Chinese, it was really through the language. I found the language fascinating. And so um, after the, the spring semester of 1989, when I went back to the States, again, as I said earlier, I really, um, my Chinese wasn't very good. And so I, was, was, I found myself 
knew that something big was going on, but didn't really understand what it was and decided that um, it was important to uh, try and get to a point where I'd have a better understanding of what was really going on. And so that actually led me, to, I think, to redouble my efforts to learn Chinese. And so even after I graduated and went to Taiwan for a year, after I was in Taiwan for a year, then I went to Beijing for 18 months or 17 months to, to work um, and to also continue to study Chinese before I went back to grad school in the U.S. And after grad school, did you have a plan? Did you, were you like, I'm going to set up a business and one day return to China? No, I was clueless. I mean, after grad school, I went to SICE here in D.C., uh, the, the school, Johns Hopkins International Studies School. And school of Advanced International Studies. School of Advanced International Studies. And, Studies. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I had a lot of student debt. Uh, and uh, I ended up, I, at the time, I was, uh, the, my girlfriend was at Stanford getting her Ph.D., and uh, I, so I decided I want to go find a job in the Bay Area. And I ended up just through, actually through College Network, found somebody whose dad had just bought a company out of bankruptcy um, who that had a China business attached to it. They, thought, they were trying to build a China business. And so I ended up going out there to work. And I was out in, um, uh, they were out in San Mateo. So I moved out there in 97. Is that right? Or 95? 95, sorry. 1995. Moved out to uh, the Bay Area. And this is a tech company? and It was actually a financial data company. It was uh, called Data Broadcasting Corporation for, for the, uh, I don't know what you, the age range of your listeners are, but you probably don't remember the Quotrek device, which was like a, had like a three foot long extendable antenna. And it was, it was basically a little brick that you could get uh, stock market uh, data over the air, over the FM sideband. And um they, they, but they had a bunch of good financial data and so, and they were trying to do the sort of replicated in China. Um, it, that didn't work out, but because they had all this financial data, when the internet started happening, um, the, some folks in the company decided to put together a, a simple website where you get stock quotes, and that which was, was one of the killer apps of Web 1.0. And that site became that, that MarketWatch, right? Originally it was just dbc.com and then... Uh, on its own, it wasn't a business, but the but uh, my boss at the time, Larry Kramer, had, who was a real visionary, realized that um, if we could find the right brand, and this was nineteen started in nineteen ninety six, we started talking to CBS, um, we could maybe make a real business, and so we ended up giving a bunch of the equity to to CBS in exchange for the rights to use the I and the name CBS Market Watch, and then they gave us, I think the original deal was thirty million dollars worth of on air credits where they would promote the website. Um, and so then we relaunched as marketwatch.com or CBS market watch in October of 1997. And you IPO'd in 1999. We were the first IPO of 1999. Um, it was, uh, an auspicious time to go public. (laughs) Well, yeah, actually we were, we were ready to, we were all teed up to go public in, um, uh, the fall of 98. And then I think it was the, the long-term capital management kind of blew up, uh, blew up the market. I think it was September ish. Uh, then the globe.com went out again this is old history uh, they did well and then when we went out we were like the second we were the i think it was january 13th for maybe anyway, it was we were the first ipo and it, for for a while we were the um i think we priced at 17 and we hit 130 um the first day our load after the crash was just above a dollar um, and then when we sold the company it was a dollar more than the ipo price so it was an interesting ride but the um uh, for a while we were the fir- fourth or third largest single day gainer for an IPO. I mean, this was, this was crazy days. 
Mm-hmm. What is it? Fun, what is, what is crazy? I mean, and I, we're going to get into the uh, the business and of newsletter writing eventually, but this is part of your path there. And what did it feel like to be there at that moment when things were blowing up and Silicon Valley was at the heat, uh, at the peak of its bubble? Uh, it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was it was we were you know we were a corporate spin out, and so we had um, we went public as our shareholders. We had we had this company, Data Broadcasting Corporation. Who, who had two co-chairmen who were very, um, you know, one had run two Hollywood studios, one had, um, another, the other was a very successful um, sort of financier in New York businessman. The other side, we had CBS. I mean, they, they were, we didn't have uh, free food and slides and pets all over the office. I mean, we were, we were focused on, you know, we, it was actually, I think, You were better. doing business. <laughs> well, we're doing, it actually was better because when, when things went south in 2000, 2001, we actually only had to do one round of layoffs. It was brutal, but... Um, it was much better than the death by thousand cuts that a lot of companies went through as a sort of, cause I think we, we had a much more realistic, um, approach that, you know, that anyway, that's a different discussion, but the, um, uh, it was, no, it, it was crazy days and you know, it, it's, it's, you look back and I mean, there were some brilliant people and it, it sort of followed that classic bubble around a new industry pattern where a whole bunch of crap went out and people and went crazy and then crashed. And then from the ruins, you have these, this incredible, sort of world-changing companies. Mm-hmm. Amazon being uh, one. Amazon, one one. Google, Google. <clears throat> I mean, go on. And so, um, but it was, it was a, it was a pretty, it was a pretty nutty time uh, in the Bay Area for sure. And I was, I was also pretty young, probably too young to really appreciate what was going on. And, and also not with enough perspective to sort of understand that this wasn't how things actually worked. Yeah. This was more of an anomaly than the, than the status quo. Um, and what was your role at uh, MarketWatch? So I was the I was the um, amorphous uh, head of business development. Um, I helped write the business plan, did a lot of deals when we started, and then um, did worked on. We tried to do we did one international deal. We had a, a joint venture in the UK with um, alt- with the Financial Times because the Financial Times parent group ultimately bought one of our big shareholders, Data Broadcasting, and. Um, so we, we did a FT market watch over there. We I spent a lot of time. We almost did a deal in Tokyo um, for a sort of a Japanese version of market watch. Uh, and then uh, ultimately for the last few years until we sold the company Dow Jones, I was uh, running the consumer website business. We had, we had set up a separate unit that was uh, through an acquisition that was selling data and tools to brokerage firms, institutions. But I was running the marketwatch.com website. Uh, overseeing advertising, and we tried to build a subscription business, uh, which is one of the reasons why I appreciate Substack because we spent huge amounts of money and engineering bandwidth and resources and time trying to um, cobble together a subscription payment system, and it was a, just a freaking nightmare. Mm. Yeah, we've heard a lot about um, people being surprised by just how difficult and fiddly it is to deal with those sorts of systems. Uh, but I don't want to turn this into an advertisement for Substack, which is something I love you guys. But yeah, that's <laughs> something I, I often say. Disclosure: Bill is an investor in the company as well, so take what he says with a grain of salt. And I'm an investor because I actually I actually started using the product first and was so impressed with it um, that I, I basically insisted until they gave in. That's right. Yeah, we'll take that. Okay, so what took you back to China? So 2004-ish, we were. Um, I've been a market watch for seven years. We were in the middle of selling the company, and it was, um, uh, you know, I had, I had sort of, I'd been, I'd been, in, sort of, just had a relationship that had blown up, and was sort of like wanted something new. Um, 
China was booming. Uh, it was just sort of a whole confluence of factors that said, you know, it might be time to make, you know, to, to make a change. And so I've been on the Bay Area for 10 years. Um, my, my life seems to go in 10 year chunks. And so I started going back to Beijing, kind of looking at things in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was splitting my time between San Francisco and, and Beijing. Then I moved there full time in 2005. And, and sp- specifically, I went back, I, I did the, um, we're not going to talk about it too much because I'm going to start drinking heavily. But um, we, uh, I went back to with a friend who who started one successful online video game. We were going to do another one, and we raised some money, and we we did that for until mid 2008, and it was just a disaster. But it wasn't it wasn't a crazy idea, and and this is where I first encountered you around 2006, and when I was in Hong Kong, and where I was writing about digital media companies and gaming in China at that point was an, a rocket ship. Yeah. This was going to be, a, a, you know, a major money-making sector. China, China's economy in general is on the rise. The middle class is on the rise. Uh, so companies don't work out all the time. You should feel no shame about yeah, that. Yeah, no, no. Course, it, was, it was, you know, and, and it was, it wasn't like a regulatory thing. We just, we didn't execute. We didn't put the right team together. And and most importantly, we we really we were trying to do a, um, a MMORPG, and we had underestimated the technical uh, complexity, and we also. Uh, didn't weren't quick enough to sort of catch the early shift from sort of these hardcore games to more of the the casual games and ultimately the mobile games. Right. Um, and so I think if we, you know, who knows if we if we'd stuck it out, then you know maybe we could have made something happen. But we were we'd run out of money, and um, at the time, you know, we were my partner was um, he had some other businesses that were doing much better, and so it just made it just it, it happened. And you know, quite honestly. We, we shut the company down, laid everybody off in July, August of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, had we waited around, it would, have been, it would have been a bloodbath because given what happened that fall, yeah. we would not have had any more money regardless. Right. So at what point did you decide to start this blog called Cynicism? Uh, so, you know, I would sort of dabbled in blogging here and there. Um, and uh, I think uh, my spouse... Uh, we had had kids in 2006, and then she started a business, um, and I was pretty unhappy after the gaming company blew up, and so I kind of um, just sort of was a stay-at-home dad for a while and kind of looking around what to do, and I really started the blog, I think it was 2000, I think Cynicism I started, gosh, it was 2011. I had a different one about China's tech that I sort of moved on. Cynicism I just started playing around with. And then I turned it into um, more of a newsletter in 2012 because my, it was blocked yeah. by, the, by so, the, the Great Firewall. And, and so I ended up using, at the time, uh, FeedBurner, which would allow people to subscribe to, like, to an R, you know, turn your RSS feed into an email. And, and so that, that's when I started. And that was in, I think that was in March of 2012. And yeah, and I remember in those early days of cynicism, there were... Um, Occasional posts by you that would find a huge audience that'd go viral, um, and is that what happened with the the firewall? And so, people for people who are unaware, like China censors the media. There's a thing called the Great Firewall where they uh, the government central government exerts control over what will and will not be distributed online, and that's what happened to you, right? Yeah, and what happened specifically was it was during the time when. Um, there was uh, it, it was before the leadership succession where Xi Jinping became general secretary, and um, there was there was a, another senior leader who was getting into trouble, and 
I had written about some of it. And then a friend of mine who at the time had somewhere around 4 million followers on, on Weibo, which is sort of like Twitter, but better. Um, she, she said, oh, this is this great site, all this information, just check it out. And so I had the most traffic ever for about five or six hours, and then it was shut down, and that was it. Wow. And to this day, it's remained uh, blocked. And so the newsletter, the shift to a newsletter was an act of desperation or well like it was just a way you know email was harder to block i still wrote the i still i still blogged i was using at the time i was using um wordpress mm-hmm. right I, I originally i was using typepad god it's old, i'm dating myself um then i used wordpress and uh so i would still i would still write it but then you know google had this they bought FeedBurner, right for rss and then they had this email newsletter thing and it was actually pretty good though they killed it but um, so I could just post and then it would also be sent out. People who wanted it as a newsletter could get it as a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only later, uh, I think in, um, I think it was 2013 maybe, where I switched to using MailChimp and sort of tried to actually focus. Because I realized it was one of those things where once I got a, got a couple thousand people or so on the feed burner list, I realized, hey, this is actually much better than just randomly writing a post and hoping people find it. Why was it better? Well, you're, you're actually communicating with people. You have, you're in people's inbox every day, and, and, and you know, if, you, if you show up regularly and are writing interesting content, they're going to they're gonna read your stuff, and they're going to actually, a lot of them, you know, communicate with you. And so it's a fundamentally different relationship than just posting, um, you know, writing on a blog. And so, uh, you know, I kind of backed into that. But then, so then I decided to move over to MailChimp because MailChimp was very good sort of mail delivery services. And... Um, kind of played around with it, played around with actually charging for it. I, I was in China and I had a lot of student readers. I kind of went the socialist route and said, pay what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I got a little bit of money, but it wasn't enough. And so I just stopped it for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got, got bored because no, I was hoping someone else would do it because I wanted to read it. And then um, no one did it. And so I just went back to doing it. And then kind of once I got back, um, it was 2015, we moved back from Beijing after 10 years to DC. And, um, you know, by 2016, I started looking at it more seriously. And uh, why? Well, I think because the market was there. Because, and, and specifically, I thank Ben Thompson um, at Stratechery a lot because, or Stratechery strategic. Ben, he says Stratechery. Yeah, Stratechery. So, so, it's not the world's uh, yes, most memorable. I was going to call it Stratechery and go, <laughs> no. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I owe a real debt to Ben because, um, you know, I met him on one of his trips to Beijing and he's in Taiwan and we'd kept in touch and, and he was very, um, very encouraging and supportive and saying, you know, you really should charge, people will pay, people will pay. Um, and, so ultimately, I actually originally was going to launch in April of uh, last year, of 2017, but both my parents, one's here in D.C., one's on the West, West Coast, both of them got sick, needed a lot of help in April, and so I delayed it. And then it actually was fortuitous because I was all set up to work with Memberful. Right. No. Um, and, we, uh, we love Memberful. <laughs> and, um, and, and I ended up delaying it into the summer, and then that's how we connected for, for, uh, for Substack. Um, but, right. So the, back to your, that was a long answer to your question. You know, it was, it was clear, because um, again, I was, I was a bit jaded about the subscription business because of what we'd gone through at MarketWatch, where, you know, we were focusing on financial newsletters, and, you know, people, we had writers who were actually recommending stocks. Um, and that's a, you know, there's a, it's a big market, these, these stock picking newsletters. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a, it was a difficult business and it was a brutal on the back end. And I just, you know, I'm not a techie. I was really proud of myself that I got Stripe, a Stripe plugin to work on, on WordPress when I was, when I was running the socialist model. <laughs> and, um, 
so so then it sort of opened you know ben helped kind of open my eyes to okay maybe this market is finally at the point where there really is room for in in you know individual uh writers curators whatever you call it to actually you know who have some some following to actually start building a business right and just for people who aren't aware of ben thompson he writes stratechery.com it's a newsletter about uh, silicon valley business models and he does it from taiwan and he charges ten dollars a month a hundred dollars a year and is making from what we can tell a lot of money a lot of money yeah. he's doing very well with it and it seems like he's been evangelizing to you that you you should go the same well he's, he's evangelized to a lot of people right mm-hmm. and and um I think that uh, he's been right. You know, it's it's, but but ultimately, it it um, you know, I wish I were as even a fifth as big as Ben. Well, he's been doing it for or, five years yeah, on the paper. Years. You've yeah, been yeah, doing yeah. it but, once. But um, the um, you know, it, it 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 ultimately though, you know, it's 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 a lot of work. Um, but it also is, uh, you know, Ben has carved out a niche as a real star sort of thought leader in his area. And I think that if you can do that in your certain area of expertise, you know, there are enough people out there and you can reach anyone anywhere in the world that you can actually build a pretty sustainable business. When you started writing Cynicism back when you were in Beijing, did you envisage it becoming a business in its own right? No, I was just, I was just you know, I was just kind of screwing around. I mean, cause I, you know, my background, when I went to grad school, my focus was, was uh, really Chinese politics. And so again, when I got blocked, that was during this period where there was this, this senior leader named Bo Xilai who um, was in the running to get a senior job in the, uh, to, at the leadership handover in 2012 and he ended up getting arrested, but there was also drama around it. And, you know, I had, um, again, given my background, my advisor had been a, he'd been in the U.S. government for a long time covering Chinese politics. He was, you know, very well respected. I really got into cynicism around the pol- the political angle because I found the media coverage at the time to be less than, uh, I-, I considered it to be not as informative as it could be for the broader audience. And so I you know, I've got this background and I might as well add my two cents to the conversation. And it's an unusual background. It, it, it's not, it must be difficult to find someone who speaks and reads Chinese fluently, who understands the political side of things, the business side of things, the media side of things, and the technology side of things. So when you said that it's, you were waiting for someone to come along and do this, it's, it's not, not really a great surprise that no one did come along and do this. It's, there's kind of only one Bill Bishop. Actually, there there's a much more famous one. I saw it as a kid. There's Billy Bishop, the Canadian war ace, World War One ace. There's this great play, Billy Bishop Goes to War. Anyway, this is... Oh. He has an amazing newsletter. No, no, but, but yeah, yeah, well, he's long dead. But no, but um, the, the um, yeah, it's an interesting mix. And I think that I was also, you know, there, there are people who, who, who do all those things better than I do, but they're already fully employed in other places. And, um, and I was kind of free and floating, um, between sort of my own background and sort of what was going on, you know, just I was really kind of a stay-at-home dad and had a lot of free time. And so um, it, it was kind of a unique, and it was a unique time in China. So it was, it's, again, there was sort of a confluence of, of things that made it, um, I think made it sort of pushed it forward. Mm. What gave you the confidence to decide to go ahead and charge for subscriptions? Um, well, basically it was, I needed, I needed to, start making money and so it was it was a okay i can try this 
you know, I, I can sort of stop screwing around and I'll try this. If it doesn't work, I'll do something else. But if it works, that would be great. And the confidence was really around one, like we talked about earlier, talking to Ben Thompson. But two, then again, the 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 ease of uh, sort of actually the the sort of the back end infrastructure was so much easier to plug into between um, you know Stripe, which allows you to charge. Um, the, you know, ultimately, obviously, I went with Substack, and it was really you know for me, all I have to worry about is writing. Yeah. Right, and that's great. And and again, I'm not trying to you know there, you know memberful was. Similar with a little bit of kludginess at the time, um, but it was there were there were a few different solutions out there. But ultimately, it, it was you know I went with you guys. But but regardless, it was it was a moment in the industry where it it made it much easier for individual individuals to go out and and really set up the or plug into a platform that allowed them to actually collect money, run a recurring subscription business. Um, without a lot of headaches, a lot, a lot of sort of mental or technical overhead, um, and then they could focus on actually creating the product. Right, and you had a good number of subscribers, uh, free subscribers already to the newsletter. Uh, so, newsletter, right? so when I switched to paid, I had, I had gotten up to thirty thousand people on my free newsletter, and you know, I mean, I, I, I provided a lot of value over the years, especially since it was free, and so. Um, the the um, it was a it was a pretty it was a good way to get started and help me you know roll into um, a sort of a revenue stream fairly quickly. Although it is it is I still was I was disappointed by how many people converted. I was hoping it would be higher, but yeah. it was still, it was it was it was a pretty good number. But you know you you sort of. My ego was a little bruised. I expect I thought they loved me more. Speaking as a guy who saw this from the other side, the Bill has been more than uh, a little bit modest here. His conversion rate was great and continues to be excellent. And uh, but I think that's actually worth talking about from a different angle, which is uh, to what extent were you concerned about trading that large free audience for a, a smaller focused audience that was paying you in dollars rather than attention? No, I was very concerned. And so when I when I launched it, what what the the model is, I do uh, four issues a week to my paid subscribers, and there's one issue, a free issue, um, usually on the weekends. Was was when I when I started last year, um, the idea being that I would you know continue you because know, I, I didn't want to I didn't want to just lose everybody else on that list. I wanted to keep that sort of broader audience engaged, and and again, you know, I like having a broad audience. I think anybody who writes does, but also from a business perspective, um, you know, if you if you can keep that broader group engaged, over time there are ways to maybe entice them to come and ultimately move over to the to the to the paying side. Um, and so that was my original plan. And then, actually, uh, last November, I switched instead of running the free newsletter myself, I teamed up with Axios to run their Axios China Weekly newsletter. Um, where I mean I'm a I'm a contributor. It's we have a separate business relationship, um, so they have nothing to do with the paid side. But that actually allowed me to um, you know plug into their system, their broader audience. I mean they're they're a machine, and so now that free list uh, I announced it you know a couple months ago. Now the free list has over fifty thousand readers. It comes out every Friday. And your profile has continued to grow as well as a, as a function of this dual setup where you have the Axios exposure and the Substack uh, paid newsletter. And I think you've recently passed 100,000 followers on Twitter and your name keeps popping up in the media. The reason I'm saying this is not to like stroke your ego, but to, sh- to show people who want to try doing something like you have done that the returns start to become uh, compounding. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think, you know, Twitter is interesting because I've wasted a lot of time on Twitter. And um, it's of the 100, I think it's 102 or 103,000 followers. I, I'm figuring like 20 are real. Um, but it, it's interesting when, I, when, I've, when I've done marketing or sort of made special offers, like I, I ran a sort of a discounted subscription program a couple, like six weeks ago or two months ago. Um, I used the direct mail to that free list and I promoted it on Twitter. And I think the direct mail got something like a 20 X response to Twitter. Um, yeah. And, and so tw- Twitter is important to raise your profile, but um, it was, a uh, uh, I probably spent too much time there. Um, but certainly things like what, what, what really help are um, good media mentions, um, but also being able to produce uh, good free content that ultimately drives that that gets passed around and sucks readers in, and then that ultimately can drive a lot of subscriptions. How important do you think is consistency? It's huge. You got to show up, right? I mean, consistency is, you know, if you're, I mean, running a business, you don't have an option. If you tell your people you're going to be there X number of times a week or a month, uh, you have to show up. I mean, I I took two weeks off. I went to Beijing beginning of August. Um, and I told people I was going to be gone and I was going to try and post a couple of times. And, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't happen for, for some other reasons, but the, um, there are some subscribers who are annoyed, but I think ultimately, you know, I'll, I'll get them happier again as I sort of kind of backfill with, with, I think some additional value. But, uh, if you're starting this kind of a business, you know, you have to, you have to think of it as, you know, you're competing with all sorts of stuff for your subscribers' attention. And even in your area of expertise, there are probably plenty of other people who are doing this. And if you just sort of show up when you feel like it, someone else is going to probably eat your lunch. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you want to you, you wanna make a commitment. And it doesn't mean, you know, it has to be try and find a way to deliver. Like if you, if you say I'm going to write every Friday, you write every Friday. If you do twice a week, you do twice a week. It can't be like I'll write when I feel like it. That, that is when... People will stray and people will, you know, you want people to start looking forward to your content and then being actually mad at you when it doesn't show up at the appointed time. Right. A question we often get as well is uh, from people starting out on Substack is how do I get subscribers? And you've built up cynicism from zero to uh, 50,000 free subscribers and a really good number of paying subscribers. So it's a very serious business now. What's your fundamental advice to people to for getting subscribers? So it takes time. I mean, I, I, I tested over the years, like Google keywords. Um, I think I tested Twitter ads, Facebook ads. I probably spent like 250 bucks um, and they all didn't deliver. Um, and I think ultimately it, what worked for me in terms of building up my free list originally was, was in the early days, consistency of media mentions, you know, finding whatever your area is, um, figuring out a way to, to get noticed by the people who are covering it in the mainstream media. Uh, and then again, just, just, you know, I, I was early on Twitter and I staked out a sort of space on Twitter as, as one of the China type people that you should follow, um, for good or for bad. And it was also, it was easier back then because there were a lot fewer people. Um, but it, there is, there is no real magic bullet. I would caution against buying subscribers. I think that ultimately the the, the ones who are going to stick with you or, and who are going to, especially in the early days and who are going to end up you know, delivering real lifetime value as paying subscribers are the ones who are going to get come to you and stick with you through ways that don't necessarily involve clicking, say, a Google ad or a Facebook ad. 
Right. So what? So for you, what are, what have been the most effective means of getting new subscribers? People who wouldn't have otherwise found you. So the two the two ways are um, getting quoted in uh, major media articles with a link in the online versions back to my website, and then um, also. Um, writing free content that then gets a lot of readership basically writing something that enough people think is interesting that good it's you know virality i think is an overused term but it has enough people interested that it gets passed around a bit Mm -hmm. uh and that ultimately and then I, i will say this is you know when i when i when i switched from a free model to a paid model i had just I think it was 30,030 uh, subscribers on my free list when I, when I converted, when I, the day I started charging through Substack. Um, the last couple, maybe three or four months ago, um, the Substack team helped me sort of redesign my landing page, the first page people get to on Cynicism, um, to be uh, much more effective at capturing email addresses. And I think if I'd had that a couple years ago, I probably would have had 50,000 subscribers because um, it's really important to builds your your site to make it very logical and easy um, and hard to resist for for users to at least give you their email address even if they're not paying Mm -hmm. and so um, it all has to work together as a funnel but ultimately you have to get people there and for me that was that came less from twitter but more from media mentions uh, and and you know word of mouth um, and then ultimately doing the work around f- free content that people enough people found had value mm-hmm. has anything changed about the way you approach the newsletter now that it is largely for paying subscribers yeah it's a lot more pressure i got like i have to say something interesting right i mean it, it's it's a you know it, it's i get up early in the morning for my kids to go to school what time do you get up um I was trying 4 a.m. and I, I decided it was a little early, um, so now I'm usually up a little before five. Um, and it's a good to put out a quality newsletter. It's it's a usually throughout the course of the day. It's it's a good five hours of solid work and and include. So what I usually do is I I actually try and do an hour and a half to two hours the night before because again you know I'm in D.C. Beijing is 12 hours ahead. So so if I go start looking at stuff. At seven o'clock at night, it's already the next day in Beijing, and so you're into the different news cycle. And so there's there's a lot, you know, there's a lot, lot you can capture before you go to bed, and then, and then in the morning, it's anywhere from three to four hours. And, and if you get up early enough, when everyone's asleep and no one's calling you, um, you can actually it's it's basically the equivalent of working a full day with no distractions. Yeah. Okay. So it's more pressure. What else? Um, well, you know, there's higher expectations. I mean, people are paying you, so they, again, they expect consistency, they expect quality. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you think there's any difference between uh, writing a newsletter and writing a blog? Uh, you know, when I, when I first started this, they were both. It was a blog that then sort of automatically became a newsletter. Um, I think that uh, but there is, because, you know, again, as we talked about, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're getting in someone's inbox, it's a, it's in many ways a more, um, it's a, it's a closer relationship than if you're just posting on a blog somewhere, say you're just writing on medium. And so I think that, um, you have to be cognizant of that as you're writing it. And, you know, I will say what's interesting is you look at sort of the, how the newsletters have developed, obviously the leaders right now are Axios and, you know, they have redefined this, they've really created this this newsletter editorial style you know there used to be like the ap style guide or there is the ap style guide i mean now there's the basically the axio style guide for newsletter writing and 
Um, it is my Friday newsletter because I work with the Axios editors is the Axios style. Um, my regular newsletter is more of a mishmash, and um, it, it is interesting because um, I think that sometimes you want to write more, but sometimes readers, you know, you you, you figure. Um, especially a mass market newsletter, you've got just a few minutes with people. My newsletter tends to be longer. I have a lot of um, specialists around the world. And so for at least the paying one, um, it's, it's, it's kind of a problem on the one hand, because if it were, if it were pithier and shorter, it might be bigger in terms of people paying. But at the same time, I would, I, it would be less interesting to some of the sort of the, the kind of the deeper specialists out there. So I'm trying to figure out how to, how to thread the needle on that. And I think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I, I have noticed, though, that um, you know, now Substack allows comments that, that every time I do a sort of a shorter-than-normal newsletter, my like ratio goes way up. So. <laughs> well, perhaps there's a positive <laughs> there, yeah, signal. I think there's a signal there. I'm just not quite listening yet, but I'm working on it. Um, well, you've been a media executive. You've written a lot, and you've been paying attention to, to tech uh, in general. Uh, and given given your success with uh, the paid newsletter and what you know from Ben Thompson, how does that make you feel about the future of the media business? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, you, you know, you, 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 I think you have a real bifurcation where, um, you know, like, like the New York Times, it looks like they've cracked digital, for example. So they're, they're actually doing pretty well now. Washington Post, obviously, is doing very well, and not just because... Jeff, Jeff Bezos' money, I mean, that's helped a lot, but I think they've actually have a more a, a more sustainable model than they had five or six years ago. Um, what's interesting is it's, I'm not sure there's anything in the middle. So you either have these really big media companies that have figured out how to um, run their businesses in a way that they can actually be profitable digitally, um, which which has t- which has caught which has has required a lot of painful uh, taking out of costs over the last few years. Uh, and then you have sort of it's. I guess it's, you could say it's sort of like a barbell. So on the one side you have the big big guys, and the other side you have the the small folks like me, um, like Ben Thompson, where you know I'm. It's just me. I don't have anybody helping me, so I have very little cost. Uh, I'm actually um, in the process of finding some interns that I will pay um, to help with some stuff, but that even then isn't going to be a, a huge cost, right? Um, I think Ben. I, I think he has. I think he has some help. I'm not sure what he what he what he has. I believe he's got one assistant. Then, if 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 that right, and so, and so, if you're if you're one or two people, um, and you have several thousand, more than ten thousand subscribers, I mean, you can you can have a really nice, highly you know very very high margin profitable business. It isn't going to scale into VC funding. It isn't going to scale into an IPO, but it can it could still be quite lucrative. Um, the ones, the folks who are in the middle, I think, you know, I would look at even, even the BuzzFeeds, it's not clear how well those businesses ultimately are going to scale as um, companies that have, are, are ultimately worth what previous rounds of investment have um, valued them at. I don't mean to pick on BuzzFeed, but, but it is, it seems like there are a few of these companies that these sort of startup new media companies that are kind of stuck in the middle where um, they, they just have a lot of costs they're just not as established or big enough um, as, say, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so it isn't it isn't clear where they kind of end up on that spectrum. But I mean, if we, to be honest, you know, looking at sort of Market Watch and what went went on there, you know, we we sold a Dow Jones in two thousand four, late two thousand four, um, 
we we always loved Dow Jones because they you know they had a legacy business and so when they launched on the internet they charged back then and of course back then very few people paid and so that created an opening for us um, and we were you know we were 50 plus million a year business when we sold the company um, the the um, today we would we, there was no way we would have, could have a standalone site like that um, because we were too we didn't have the scale right right and we had we had the cost without the scale and so um, so that that is a business I think that era has has kind of passed about having building those kind of startup sort of scaling new media businesses that ultimately have a a very high valuation. I could be wrong to anyone who's a Vox or BuzzFeed. Apologies. <laughs> yeah, call in, leave a note. But I, I again, I go back to looking at it as, as much more of a of a barbell, and and I'm certainly on the um, the smaller side of the barbell. But again, it's so far knock on wood, it's been a, been very fortunate. It's been a, it's a good business. Yeah, smaller operationally, but not smaller in revenue per headcount. Right, or you know, and much higher margins. And I think that's where like Substack comes in because Substack enables you to do that. And at the same time, for Substack, what'll be interesting is whether or not they, you know, they can find enough, whether you guys can find enough people to actually make your business interesting. And how do you feel about your position on that spectrum as an independent and uh, the future of your your publishing business as an independent? Uh, I think it's great. I mean, and ultimately, though, you know, you know, ultimately, it's it's my newsletter. I'm the brand, right? I mean, this is this is the other the other challenge, right? Is is these kind of newsletters is. You know, if if I can't write for a couple of weeks or I go on vacation, that's I got a, I got a business problem. So that's that's one of the risks because it's just it's it's me. And even if I get some help, um, the subscribers are paying for my view of things, and they don't always agree with me. And I'm certainly not always right, and you know, probably wrong, at least as much as I'm right. But uh, again, it's you know, I'm in a picked a big enough topic and a complicated enough topic that. Um, and an important enough topic that there are there are significant number of people out there who are willing to pay for um, as they're trying to figure out what's going on that you know different pieces of information and I'm sort of becoming one of the one of the pieces that is is um, I want to get to the point where I'm required for people who are looking at China but I'm definitely one of the pieces that's um, considered very useful as sort of trying to figure out what's going on in China. Okay, if you had one piece of advice for someone who uh, was in your position thinking about going paid or starting a paid newsletter and building up over time, uh, what would it be? So, you know, I, I, am, I would be reticent to have started this from day one as a paid newsletter. Um, I think it, there, you know, there's more willingness of consumers to pay, but the... Um, there still are barriers and you know to get people to give you even a few dollars a month they have to have been convinced that you're worth it and so i think it's 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 important to figure out how to build yourself up as a um someone who's if you're if you're sort of covering if it's more of a serious thing you know a, a, an expert in that topic area and i think you have to do that with putting a fair amount of free work in before before you can start charging well, that's great. Let's come to the end of our time. Bill, thank you very much. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, cynicism.com. S-I-N-O-C-A-S-M.com. C-I-S-M.com. And on Twitter, what's your handle? On uh, Twitter is uh, N-I-U-B-I. Great. Well, thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you.